Good morning. Mm-mm-mm. Uh, it's a great morning for coffee and cigarettes here as we talk pietism and answer some charges against it. I have a couple interesting uh, articles here to read with you that I believe gravely, and I mean gravely, misrepresent what I am about when I embrace what you might call confessional pietism. So if you hear clicking with the mouse or the space bar and the keyboard or something like that, or if you hear lots of mm-mm-mm, cigarette smoking, by which I'm trying to prove a point, um, please bear with me. It'll be a little bit more of an informal episode for a reason. Because you would think as somebody that embraces pietism, I shouldn't be smoking cigarettes, right? But uh, let's go ahead and read some stuff so we can respond to it with a nice uh, little American spirit in my fingers. So here is from thejaggedword.com. This is from 2016 by a guy named Graham Glover, and he has an article entitled Pietism's Grave Danger to Christianity. Oh boy. We're in danger, guys. Mm. He, re- he writes, I am generally immune to the antics of Christian pietists. Their self-righteousness is more silly than offensive, and their claim to represent some kind of authentic Christianity is as ridiculous as the theology they espouse. They are found throughout Christendom from Roman Catholicism to your garden-variety non-denominational community church. And yes, they even make their presence known in my own Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The best way to deal with their heresy, and yes, they are heretics, mm, coffee, in a most vile and a horrendous way. You hear that? According to this guy, I'm a heretic in a most vile and horrendous way. Mm. Well, let's see what he means by that. Um, If they want to look to what they perceive to be their good works, some asinine way of righteous living, as that which earns them favor and subsequently salvation with our Lord, mm, and so be it. I'd rather deal with a non-Christian who essentially believes the same thing and in so doing share the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus than to try to reason with a pietist who is convinced that grace is not enough that Christ's blood is not the only thing that warrants forgiveness, and that our works are the true measure of our faith and our standing before God. At least with the non-believer, there is the possibility of them embracing the free gift of salvation given to us by our Savior. The pietist, however, wants nothing to do with Jesus. Mm. Mm. I'm so smart. I'm so gospel-centered. I can just imagine him saying that, like in between typing here. I am just, oh my goodness. I'm so holy and pious writing about this as I slam the pietist. (laughs) Mm. The pietist, however, wants nothing to do with Jesus. They may tell you otherwise. They talk a lot about Jesus. They think what they preach is what Jesus taught and preached. For them, Jesus is the ultimate role model, the perfect leader they think can transform their lives. On the later point, they are correct. Jesus radically changes lives. But what Jesus did, and what Jesus continues to do, is seldom, if ever, found in their words or deeds. Do you think this guy ever met any pietists? I I gotta wonder, because I've pastored over a pietist church, 
And none of them, to my recollection, are a bunch of filthy hypocrites that rely on their works for salvation. None of them, by my estimation, and I've pastored over confessional Lutheran church, I've pastored over pietist Lutheran church, and um, no, they're, they're, they're great people. Love them to death. But let's keep reading. Let's, let's hear more about the evil dangers of pietist Lutherans. Pietists know little about an incarnate Lord that makes himself present in the gifts of his church. Mm. So sad. The Holy Scriptures are rule books of what we should do for God, instead of God's revelation about what he does for us. Worship is a way for us to show God that we love him, instead of a means for God to literally give himself to us. Prayer consists of a lot of praise for the Lord's glory and majesty instead of petitions that proclaim how this same God became flesh to forgive us for our many trespasses. For the pietist, Christian living takes its shape in meeting a standard set by their local congregation or an ever-evolving parachurch organization instead of reveling in the various vocations to which each of us have been called. On so many levels, Pietism is steeped in the I instead of the I am. Ooh, good burn. So why not do what I note above and simply ignore them? Why not treat them as the insignificant afterthoughts they should be to those who hold the Catholic faith? Small c, this guy's a Lutheran. I wish we could. Few things would please me more than to see our churches ignore the treachery that pietism teaches. Don't kid yourself. Pietism is dangerous. It's more dangerous than most heresies because it disguises itself as Christian. Yes, he does write, because is disguises itself as Christian. Mm -hmm. It uses words that Christians are familiar with and ideas that are found in our doctrines and teachings, but pietism is not Christian at all. It's all about the self. It's only and exclusively about what we do. Christ's crucifixion, his resurrection, his constant intercession on our behalf to the Father is alien to the pietist. Mm. Of course it is. That's right. I, uh, I only spent five and a half years in Christian education and, uh, and switched to being a pietist because I don't know anything about Jesus. Nothing about Jesus. N not at all. This should make any Christian cringe. Hear that? You're cringe, and I'm based because you're a pietist, and I'm a Lutheran. Well, I'm a pietist Lutheran. Shut up. Continuing on reading, though. To think that our faith could turn into something that focuses on us rather than on Christ is frightening. This concept is antithetical to everything authentically Christian. Sadly, however, I'm pretty sure pietism is here to stay. It remains because Satan wants nothing more than for us to look inward to ourselves. Looking to the cross, looking to the empty tomb is exactly what Satan does not want us to do. The evil one wants us to trust in ourselves. He wants us to find satisfaction in our works. For when we do this, Christ becomes an afterthought. His grace, his forgiveness becomes insignificant. Consequently, we don't need church. We only need ourselves, and when we do this, Satan has won. Mm -mm -mm. Snappy fingers paint your nails. Thankfully, we know that our faith is not about us. It is about Jesus. Our works are meaningless and insignificant. Don't fool yourself otherwise. It's only about Jesus' works. It's not about our righteousness. It's only, today and forever, about Christ's righteousness. 
Yes, pietism is dangerous, but so too is Satan, and Christ defeated him as he will one day this most ancient of heresies. So, is the real red pill on me that I'm an evil pietist heretic that probably deserves to be kicked out of church, destroyed from the inside out, and converted to a nice, beautiful Lutheran faith where you never really have to worry about doing anything? <laughs> All right, well, let's see here. From 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, St. Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now, how does St. Paul mean when he talks about examine yourselves? Is he telling us to ignore ourselves entirely like this writer is saying my works are trash I don't need to do anything everything is about Jesus and therefore I mean it's okay if I just do bad stuff right now this is a Missouri Synod Lutheran here writing about um, pietism being extremely dangerous but we interpret scripture with scripture and I'm sure well this guy would like to say in 2nd Corinthians uh 13 verse 5, that we examine ourselves by just making sure we're not looking at ourselves and we're not thinking about ourselves whatsoever. We just got our eyes on the prize, our eyes on Jesus the entire time. I like to interpret scripture with scripture. Let's go ahead and go to 2 Peter chapter 1 and let's see what exactly St. Peter has to say about how we can test ourselves here, how we can examine ourselves, uh, just like St. Paul tells us to do. <clears throat> From 2 Peter 1, verse 3 and on, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love, or agape. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hmm, sounds like St. Peter was a little bit of a pietist. Don't you think? St. Peter telling us we need to inhabit these virtues, that we need to grow these things in ourselves to, to do what? To make your calling and election sure. Meaning, test yourselves. How am I doing in the faith? Hmm. Man, never knew we should uh, take Second Peter right out of the canon of Scripture because it's just a little bit too much like that pietist heresy, isn't it? 
I mean, articles like this, uh, you could claim that it's just, uh, you know, this is polemics. He doesn't really mean it, but it does reflect his theology, which is, I don't have to do stuff because Jesus did something. But here's St. Peter. After St. Paul tells us to test ourselves, here is St. Peter telling us how we go about that. Look at the virtues. Am I inhabiting those virtues? Am I doing my part in the... Uh, in the sanctification process. We understand salvation is monergistic, but sanctification is synergistic. We weakly do our best in a weak fashion to try to assist with that. And that means every now and then going, am I pursuing rightly the holiness to which God has called me? And how do I do that? Well, probably through looking at these virtues and uh, developing them through good works. After all, um, you do realize, and I hope he realizes, that St. Paul said good works were important too. In fact, they are essential. And the formula of Concord, by the way, if this guy really is a Missouri Synod Lutheran, we're going to get to the formula of Concord on good works too. But but let's, uh, let's go to St. Paul real quick. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 here. And we're going to go through verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Wow, so St. Paul is um, sounds pretty Lutheran, doesn't he? He believes we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by our works. But then look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Oh my gosh, St. Paul is a Lutheran pietist. Tisk tisk. Somebody take Ephesians out of the Bible. This man needs to be cast out of the canon of saints here for being so pietistic, for saying that we need to do stuff as Christians, that we need to seek to do good works, because that's what we were made to do. Now, obviously... Somebody might opine that you just kind of do good works automatically, right? The more you have the sacraments, the more God himself sanctifies you, and you're going to find yourself just doing good works willy-nilly, right? Is that how it should be? Is it, is it should be that um, you give up your freed will, that is, our will that was under the bondage of sin, death, and the devil, but was freed from these things to weakly cooperate with the Holy Spirit, um, should we bind that will again in order to just say that, no, 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 God will take care of forcing me to do good works as he increases me in holiness? Are we really to be like that? Are we to be um, feminine and passive in our faith? Well, let's see how the formula of Concord, and we'll go to the epitome. Lord knows we don't want to be here for three hours reading from the Solid Declaration. But this is from Article 4 of the formula of Concord. <clears throat> the chief issue in the controversy concerning good works. Two controversies have arisen in some churches concerning the doctrine of good works. The first division among some theologians was occasioned when one party asserted that good works are necessary to salvation. It is impossible to be saved without good works and that no one has ever been saved without good works. The other party asserted that good works are 
detrimental to salvation. They were probably saying things like this jagged word guy here saying, if you look at your works at all, I mean, that's it's going to result in you not having any faith, right? But we keep reading too. The second controversy arose among certain theologians concerning the use of the words necessary and free. The one party contended that we should not use the word necessary when speaking of the new obedience, since it does not flow from necessity or coercion, but from a spontaneous spirit. The other party held with reference to the word necessary, that the new obedience is not a matter of our choice, but that regenerated persons are bound to render such obedience. At first, this was merely a semantic issue. Later on, a real controversy developed. The one party contended that the law should not be preached at all to Christians, but that people should be admonished to do good works solely on the basis of the gospel. This, the other party denied. So, affirmative theses from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, Article 4. The pure doctrine of the Christian church in this controversy. In order to explain this controversy from the ground up and to resolve it, this is our doctrine, faith, and confession. 1. That good works, like fruits of a good tree, certainly and indubitably follow genuine faith, if it is a living and not a dead faith. Ooh. Now we're going to see that phrase in another article where they're criticizing the use of the terms living faith and dead faith, saying it was a Spainer thing. It was just those, those nasty Lutheran pietists comparing living faith and dead faith. But here we do see it in the formula of Concord. So let's reread that. In the affirmative theses, one, that good works like fruits of a good tree certainly and indubitably follow genuine faith if it is a living and not a dead faith. Two, we believe, teach, and confess that good works should be completely excluded from a discussion of the article of man's salvation, as well as from the article of our justification before God. Agreed. The apostle affirms in clear terms. So also David declares that salvation pertains only to the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, saying, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Romans 4, 6-8. Agreed. And again, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 3. We believe, teach, and confess further that all men, but especially those who are regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit, are obligated to do good works. 4. In this sense, the words necessary, ought, and must are correctly and in a Christian way applied to the regenerated and are in no way contrary to the pattern of sound words and terminology. Oh my goodness. Here are the Lutheran reformers, Chemnitz et al., saying you must do good works. It is necessary for you. It's not necessary for your salvation, but it is necessary for you to do good works. Was Chemnitz a pietist? Should we throw the formula of Concord out of confessional Lutheranism? Hmm. I'd hope not. But we continue reading. Maybe, maybe he turns around and says, but no, 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 no. You just look to Jesus for all good works because he did them all and you're not supposed to do any of them. Stop, stop even thinking about uh, good works and examining yourselves and all that Bible stuff. <laughs> Let's keep reading here. 
Uh, however, point number five, however, when applied to the regenerated, the words necessity and necessary are to be understood as involving not coercion, but the due obedience which genuine believers, insofar as they are reborn, render not by coercion or compulsion of the law, but from a spontaneous spirit, because they are no longer under the law, but under grace. Agreed. That's Romans 6.14, 7.6, and 8.14. Yes, 100%. So, do good works. They are necessary, but not because you are fearing hell. But rather, do good works because you are saved. Point six. Therefore, we also believe, teach, and confess that the statement, the regenerated, do good works from a free spirit, should not be understood as though it were left to the regenerated person's option whether to do or not to do good, and that he might keep his faith even if he deliberately were to persist in sin. 7. This, however, should be understood exactly as our Lord and the apostles themselves explain it, as applying only to the liberated spirit which does good works, not from a fear of punishment like a slave, but out of a love of righteousness like a child. Romans 8 verse 15. 8. However, in the elect children of God, this spontaneity is not perfect, but they are still encumbered with much weakness, as St. Paul complains of himself in Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, and Galatians 5, 17. Hmm. So you don't have to be perfect. We understand this. Pietists understand this. But point nine, nevertheless, for Christ's sake, the Lord does not reckon this weakness against his elect, as it is written. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. Number 10, we also believe, teach, and confess that not our works, but only the Holy Spirit working through faith preserves faith and salvation in us. The good works are testimonies of the Holy Spirit's presence and indwelling. Hmm. So, if I want to see the testimony of the Holy Spirit's presence and indwelling, if other people want to see that in me, then good works are a part of the equation. That might require a little bit of self-examination, wouldn't it? Just, just a little? Just a little? Mm -hmm. And let's go ahead and finish up this uh, epitome article for here. False antitheses. One, accordingly, we reject and condemn spoken and written formulations which teach that good works are necessary to salvation. Agreed. Likewise, that no one has ever been saved without good works. Likewise, that it is impossible to be saved without good works. Agreed. Two, we also reject and condemn as offensive and as subversive of Christian discipline that bald statement that good works are detrimental to salvation. Especially in these last times, it is just as necessary to exhort people to Christian discipline and good works and to remind them how necessary it is that they exercise themselves in good works as an evidence of their faith and their gratitude toward God as it is to warn against mingling good works in the article of justification. Such an Epicurean dream concerning faith can damn people just as much as a papistic and pharisaic confidence in one's own works and merit. 
We also reject and condemn the teaching that faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are not lost through malicious sin, but that the holy ones and the elect retain the Holy Spirit even though they fall into adultery and other sins and persist in them. So, sounds to me like according to that guy's article, according to his definition of pietism as a theological outlook that looks inward, that examines one's own, you know, good works and tries to do good works in obedience to Christ. To see him as an example in addition to being our Savior who saves us through faith in him by grace alone. Um, why is this guy in the Missouri Synod? Because it sounds to me like, like the Reformers were pietists. Oh my goodness. Tisk tisk. Gotta just throw out the whole stinking book of Concord, don't we? Whenever, whenever somebody tries polemics like this, and they don't know what they're talking about. They just come off like snotty little children. I, I mean, at the end of the day, when you don't know what you're talking about, but you, you hold up your high hand and you raise your fist to condemn heresy, and, and you're all about that discernment for your jagged word website, and you make yourself look this stupid and this angry at, at a, something that isn't even a heresy, but follows scripture, follows the confessions, and actually means it when they say they are Christian, well, goodness gracious, I think we should all be pietists instead of this idiot. Now, you may hear the idea that pietism involves uh, criticizing people, inventing sins. We'll get to that. Because there is a, a more educated article that actually does bring up some good points against my view of things. That's okay, we'll address them. But I just want to illustrate, by the way, if you're wondering, uh, why, why am I smoking while we're doing this? Let me light up another. Mm -mm -mm. Why am I smoking while we're doing this? Because even though I love and embrace pietism, I have zero problem celebrating the freedom I have in Jesus Christ. Because if you are a Lutheran pietist, it really means you're just a Christian that means it. You really should mean it when you say you have freedom in Jesus, but you should also love God's word and you should love his commandments. After all, Psalm 119, longest chapter in the entirety of scripture, is one big love letter to God's law. I guess King David was a pietist. Huh. The guy that wrote the greatest hits of the Bible, right? Mm. But with that, let's address a more serious and academic article on this. This is Piety versus Pietism by Russell P. Dawn in the Lutheran Witness, uh, witness.lcms.org. <clears throat> Don't be so pious. It's strange that what was once a term of honor has become an insult. In mainstream America, pious has come to mean stuffy and self-righteous. It can mean that in Lutheran circles too, but with us there tends to be even more of an edge to it. For one Lutheran to label another one pious often implies that the other is not genuinely Lutheran. He or she has not embraced Christian freedom, the freedom that comes when the shackles of the law fall from our wrists because of the good news of salvation in Christ by grace alone through faith alone. The term is often used interchangeably with pietistic. 
The problem is, this guy writes, pious and pietistic are not the same thing. Indeed, all Lutherans both are and ought to be pious. So, before we keep reading here, we'll, we'll acknowledge he's driving a wedge between or having different definitions for piety and pietism. Let's see what he go, where he goes with that. What is piety? Piety, that is being pious, can be thought of in two ways. The first is inward piety, piety in the soul. Another term for it is righteousness. Every Christian in the history of the church from Adam and Eve down to you and me is pious in this sense. We cannot strive for this piety. We cannot earn it. We don't even naturally want it. Well, if he's saying it's righteousness, sure. Well, naturally we don't want it due to our original sin, but we should want it, right? And he's saying that, well, every Christian is, because we are justified by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He keeps going, This is the righteousness of God that becomes ours through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the righteousness of faith. It is our salvation. We should never confuse this piety with lofty emotions or a holy attitude or even a feeling of trust. It doesn't reside in our brains or experiences, although faith does transform us in heart and spirit and mind and powers. Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration 4. It is God's inexplicable gift to wicked sinners. It is in this sense that Lutherans are pious. The second way to think of piety is outward, or piety that we live out. Another term for it is good works. Aha, says the Lutheran, you said good works. Those are for Catholics and Methodists and revivalist preachers. Good works don't apply to us because we're already saved. Well, in a way. I like how this guy writes. In a way, yes, but mainly no, no, no. I say yes because good works don't make us good or righteous or Christian. They don't save us or anyone else. But emphatically, I say no, because good works flow naturally from faith, outward piety from inward piety. The solid declaration of the formula of Concord says that it is God's will, order, and command that believers should walk in good works. That the works to be done are those that God himself has prescribed and commanded in his word. And that these works are done when a person is reconciled with God through faith and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Again, Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration, Article 4. The formula then goes on to warn against the anti-good works attitude. For many create for themselves a dead faith or delusion that lacks repentance and good works. They act as though there could be true faith in a heart at the same time as the wicked intention to persevere and continue in sin. Romans 6 verses 1 and 2. This is impossible. Or, they act as though a person could have and keep true faith, righteousness, and salvation, even though he is and remains a corrupt and unfruitful tree from which no good fruit comes at all. In fact, they say this even though a person persists in sins against conscience or purposely engages again in these sins. All of this is incorrect and false, end quote. Thus, a scornful attitude toward piety is not more Christian or more Lutheran than piety itself. In fact, it isn't Christian or Lutheran at all. Good job. So this guy here, uh, an educated Lutheran, probably a pastor writing for the uh, Lutheran Witness, would slam down the same article I slammed down. Because that other guy had zero nuance or understanding of what he was talking about. But we keep reading. 
Are we to continue in sin that grace can abound? By no means. Romans 6, 1. Rather we let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good, loving one another, and outdoing one another in showing honor. It is in this sense that Lutherans ought to be pious. One might wonder, then, why so many Lutherans shun the idea of piety. The answer may be partly because of the sins against which the formula of Concord warned, but it is also partly because of confusion with the word pietism. So, what then is pietism? And here, I'm going to go ahead and answer this guy, his concerns and everything, as we read the article, and hopefully we can come to a clearer understanding. Because again, I consider myself a confessional pietist. I'm a confessional Lutheran, and I want to be a pietist. But at the same time, at the same rate, when you take pietism out of a confessional context, then you have serious problems. Because you, don't, you are not bound by the word in a confessional sense. You are not bound with the condemnations of enthusiasm and rationalism that would honestly help us to navigate, to not go to the right nor the left as scripture commands. So, let's go ahead and read what he says. So what then is pietism? Pietism is a belief system, a theology with roots in a 17th century German movement and far-reaching consequences across the centuries and around the globe. It is not the same thing as the Christian life of piety, although pietists past and present tend to equate the two, like me. In the first half of the 17th century, armies from all over Europe marched and fought in the kingdoms of Germany as the Thirty Years' War raged. By the time the war ended officially with the signing of the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, Germany was blood-soaked, exhausted, and impoverished. It was also deeply in doubt that the theological differences which had at least partly driven the war could be resolved, or even really mattered. At the same time, scientific discovery was showing great promise which led some people even more deeply into religious doubt. In this broad malaise, Christian piety suffered. Knowing that this was the world into which pietism was birthed should make the movement a bit easier to understand. Faith without works is indeed dead, and dead faith was widespread in Germany's churches in the late 17th century. In response to this, various pietist movements arose around that time, some of them Lutheran, others Reformed, but the most influential strands go back to Philip Jacob Spanner, a Lutheran theologian. He sought to revive the faith of a morbid church, and his intentions were good, even laudable. But harm tends to result from good intentions when those intentions aren't accompanied by sound biblical teaching. Let's explore where Spener and pietism went wrong. Spener called for Christian laity to meet together, apart from divine service, in order to mutually encourage piety. Such groups were the forerunners of modern in-home Bible study groups. But the fact that earnest people were meeting privately for admonition and encouragement isn't what caused the movement to stray from biblical principles. The root of the error, as Bengt Hoglund describes in his History of Theology, is epistemological. Epistemology is the study of how we know things. It's a strange word for something that all of us do. Even children are epistemologists when they demand, how do you know, or when they sing, for the Bible tells me so. Spanner's epistemology was that experience is the basis of all certainty, so he emphasized the importance of the individual Christian's experience of renewal or new birth. 
rather than focusing on the objective truth of Christ's death and resurrection for us and the objective and spirit-filled word that brings this objective truth to people in need of good news. Spanner turned the Christian's focus inward toward a subjective experience of inner transformation. And here's where I'm going to disagree with this author a little bit here. Spanner was not coming from an epistemology that says, if I feel it, therefore it's true, or that's how I evaluate everything. Not by the objective word of God, but rather by my subjective experience. It's better to say that the word is the objective truth to which we look, and it is also going to have a subjective application to which we test ourselves. And this leads to emotional and subjective results at times when we actually compare what the word says to what we are doing. Let's look at Psalm 51 here. Again, I will say it over and over again. King David was a pietist. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So first two verses of Psalm 51, King David is looking at God as the objective source of forgiveness and mercy. King David is looking to God as the source of gospel. But what does he say in verse 3 onward? For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. King David then starts to point it at himself. He knows God's word. He knows his commandments. After all, what does he say when Nathan confronts him about the man? You know, the man with the, the neighbor that had the one lone little ewe lamb and the, the rich man takes it. Well, David goes to the word and says, oh, he should restore that fourfold. Nathan says, you are the man. King David loved God's word. He applied it subjectively in the law saying, okay, well, this is what should happen in this situation because of this commandment. And here he's doing the same thing. He's saying, you are the source of love and mercy. That is objectively true. I'm going to apply that to me because I'm going to confess to you right now my sins, my grievous sins. And he continues in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Those are emotional terms. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Hmm. Sounds to me like King David here is in verse 10, he subjectively tested himself, creating me a clean heart. How do you know that you need a clean heart unless you know that your heart is dirty through confession, through the inward look at what have I done? What do I, what, what do I need to confess? And then we see this all over the place, but we're just going to read the rest of Psalm 51 here. 
Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So here David is, um, more of a response to that other guy we were reading, saying he was going to exert people, exhort people to good works. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God not despising that. That requires a kind of a epistemological approach to examining the self. Now, Spanner did not say, and he wasn't about judging everything by that. It is as it is applied to ourselves and our inward and outward piety. How am I doing? Am I testing this? Am I seeking after God's righteousness? But, unfortunately, I think it, it can be easy to get Spanner wrong here. So I get where this guy is going, but I don't think he really disagrees with Spanner all that much. Well, let's go ahead and continue reading in the article here. In the following generation, pietism began to move beyond Spanner's modest but crucial departure from historic Lutheranism. Led by August Hermann Franke, the pietists of the German city of Hall believed that any true Christian could point back in his or her life to an inner struggle with sin that culminated in a crisis and ultimately a decision to start a new Christ-centered life. It is after that experience and that decision that one would receive faith and forgiveness. Also, these pietists did not see the new life as a life of Christian freedom, but of Christian legalism. They saw the law as even more strict for Christians than for non-Christians. They viewed natural desires and pleasures as sinful, whether or not they were contrary to God's law. In the town of Hernhut, east of Halle, Nikolaus von Zinzendorf took the emphasis on experience in a different direction. His United Brethren, or Moravian Church, emphasized the experience of intimate relationship with Christ, especially an emotional solidarity with Christ in his suffering on the cross. Okay, let's respond to that. Is it true that pietists, if they are, if the reins are taken off and they're given freedom to just develop this kind of theology without any sort of leash, will they end up being legalists? Will they end up uh, following some sort of weird proto-crisis theology, which doesn't really show up again until the early 20th century with Barth and others? Absolutely. 100% correct. And there are tons of examples where that has happened. I agree. That's bad. You shouldn't see the law as so restrictive that you can hardly breathe. Hence me smoking two cigarettes here while recording this. It's not a sin for me to have a bit of tobacco. But that is why we need confessional p- 
pietism. If pietism is born out of a desire, an earnest desire to follow God's word and to do as the saints of old have done, well, then we need to do that, but with right doctrine. You allow that to happen. You must develop that because that helps us in our devotion to Christ, but it must be leashed to the word. And confessionalism, being a 1580 Book of Concord reading confessional Lutheran, that is the leash that helps keep us from straying. Am I making sense here? It's a good thing to want to be a pietist. It really is. And it's good to apply what scripture commands us subjectively and to say, am I doing this? If I'm not, Lord help me and forgive me. If I am, all glory to God. If we're not doing that, well, then maybe we need to emphasize it a little bit more because that's what the confessions tell us to do. That's what Luther talks about in the doctrine of tentatio, everything. So we need a balance. Of course, there are excesses in everything, but let's keep going here. All of these should seem eerily familiar in our modern American context, the need for a conversion experience and a decision for Christ, the focus on experience and intimacy, all are widespread in Christianity today. Indeed, we can find them even within our Lutheran churches and schools, turning eyes that belong on the cross inward toward ourselves. And my response to that again is the Bible tells us to look to Jesus. Absolutely. When Jesus says the Son of Man will be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses lifts that up and all the people are told, look to that serpent if you want to live. And so we too, following Jesus' analogy, we look to Christ for our life. But that is the inward piety. And there are times in which the scripture tells us to examine ourselves. It tells us to turn our eyes inward and ultimately, at the end of the day, you'll find every single day you come up wanting. That's not a bad thing. It's what the Bible wants us to do. But we continue on. Uh, we're almost done here. In a nutshell, then, pietism is simply an oversized and out-of-place emphasis on works. It is a confusion of law and gospel in which a human work, a decision, or emotion, rather than the cross of Christ alone, brings the assurance of salvation. Pietism also plays right into our fallen nature by appearing to focus on Christ, a decision for Christ and sympathy with Christ, while actually focusing on the sinner's personal experience. But our experience, decisions, and emotions are ultimately unreliable. They cannot save us. God alone saves. Redeemed by Christ, we thank God for giving us his righteousness, and we respond willingly by putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Freely and only freely do we embrace a life of genuine piety, while remaining always on our guard against pietism, lest law replace the gospel and the cross be emptied of its power. Now, is that a temptation? Absolutely. The Methodists fell into that trap at various times. There were German Lutheran pietists that fell into that. The, the firstborn Lystadians are, from what I hear, pretty bad about that. But a proper confessional understanding of the law is that it has a third use that does emphasize our lives as we now live according to the new obedience. 
it shouldn't be a dirty word to say that God wants you to do stuff and you need to do it. Again, just read from the formula of Concord emphasizing that. And it's also not a dirty word to say that our assurance of salvation does ultimately come from our baptism. It comes from faith in the gospel, hearing the pure words of the gospel, and it absolutely is strengthened in the sacrament of Holy Communion. And God also helps our flesh by giving us the vindication that is accompanied by good works, hence James chapter 2. It's okay to say that. Now, should that allow you to be arrogant of, oh, I do good works, so I am so assured of my vindication before men in the church, and, and I feel good that the Bible tells me to examine myself and test myself, and I examined myself to do all this good stuff, and wow, I'm doing great. Of course not. You should be humble. Because after all, humility is one of the virtues. <laughs> but that said, it is a good thing that God gives us. We don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that the law is a bad thing. The law is a good thing. It's absolutely righteous and holy. I want the law to convict me of my sin. I want the law to curtail my own wickedness. And I want the law to teach me how to be an effective and fruitful Christian. I want that. That's good. That is holy. And I praise that. And I love the gospel even more. Because that gives me all the reasons to actually enjoy life in the way God has given me to live. To look forward to salvation. To look forward to eternal life. That is absolutely a joy-filled path. So that's it. It's a little brief defense of uh, what I'm calling confessional pietism. I would love to hear your thoughts and comments if you shoot me an email at very underscore Lutheran at tutanota.com. Let's get a conversation going and we'll, uh, you know, I can read these emails on air and hey, it's free content for me. Anyway, I love you all. Amen and amen.